0: Hello and welcome to the Clever Tax Podcast, Creating Useful People. I'm Jodie Cook, and today I'm joined by Graham Allcott. Graham is an entrepreneur and an author. He's written three books, including the global bestseller, How to Be a Productivity Ninja. Graham's company, Think Productive, has teams of people in 15 different countries, and counting, providing productivity training and consultancy to create productivity ninjas all over the world. Welcome to the show, Graham.
1: Hi, really good to be here.
0: So Graham also has his own podcast called Beyond Busy, all about productivity, work-life balance, happiness and success. So I love that he interviews other people all about these concepts and now I get to interview him on the childhood influences that helped him develop a sense of what these concepts mean to him. So Graham, can you start by telling us about your childhood?
1: My childhood was fairly typical and middle, I guess, in lots of ways. I grew up in the Midlands, sort of in a fairly average kind of middle class kind of background. My We had quite a lot of struggles financially through mm-hmm. parts of my childhood as well. So I was a free school meals kid for quite a while. And there was just nothing really that remarkable about it whatsoever, I think is probably the best <laughs> way of saying that. And I think there's some real benefits to that. I mean, I, what I didn't have was like a really challenging time and I didn't grow up around violence and abuse and and really horrible stuff and in later life I've spent quite a lot of time working with charities where there's young people who've grown up in very challenging circumstances and you can really see how some of those circumstances just really shape those people as people both positively and negatively whereas I think my childhood was just very it was safe you know it wasn't kind of lavish in any way there was a bit of struggle. There wasn't loads of struggle. It just felt like a very kind of ordinary upbringing, really.
0: Okay. Everyone thinks their upbringing was normal, don't they?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Maybe. It's a bit like the nutter on the bus thing, right? Like if you (laughs) you can't see the nutter on the bus, it's probably you. Yes,
0: definitely. So what did your parents do for work when you were growing up?
1: So my mum was a teacher. She spent quite a few years out of work bringing up kids and not being able to find jobs and stuff. And then my dad did a couple of different things for a few years he was a salesman of insurance and then for most of my childhood he was the night manager in a hotel so a job that was very misunderstood until uh, it became a big tv hit in the last few years but um, he's basically the person who keeps the hotel going at night when you want to check in at one in the morning and puts all the chairs out for the conferences the next day and all that kind of thing so very kind of solitary job and, and did that for many years.
0: And so, when you were younger, what was your? Did you have any concept of your parents' jobs? Did Did you know what they were doing day to day?
1: I think my mum's was easy because I knew what teaching was because <laughs> I had teachers all around me, so that was easy. My dad's was a bit different, and I, I remember him taking me one day when he was selling insurance. He took me to the office, and of, of course, you know, sort of it was one of those ones where it's like school holidays, and there was no other childcare option, so we were just kind of sitting in the corner of the office, me and my sister doing coloring all day you know it's probably six or seven or something and I remember kind of looking around this wood paneled office and just not really understanding what was going on at all and that was really my only experience of it and and then the, the most I guess the most kind of formative experience was when my dad was having problems with that job because he wasn't selling enough basically and there was this real you could sense there was a real stress at home so I guess it was one of those things where you don't really understand what's going on and then also, just this thing of knowing that even though you don't understand it, it's kind of stressful and it's difficult in some way. That was the, the main thing I remember, I guess.
0: Yeah, like you sense the stress and you sense that someone's not enjoying it and is under pressure as well, even yeah. though.
1: Yeah, but it, it just also felt like very futile, like there was nothing much that we could do about it. And once he got home, nothing much that he could do about it either. Just one of those kind of stresses. You know.
0: So, when your dad was kind of getting out of the stressful times and when things were good, did you know much about it then?
1: I mean, again, he took me to, I stayed over one night in the hotel. I don't think this was because there was no childcare. I think this was, you know, when I was about maybe 11 or 12, I spent a night with him in the hotel. we remember sleeping on a sort of big long couch in the bar area of the hotel and stuff. It was really good fun. <laughs> And I just remember the smell of the booze, just like that stale booze smell
2: uh-huh, uh-huh. being really
1: strong. And just remembers kind of seeing rabbits at four o'clock in the morning and thinking, this feels like it's quite a good job. Because <laughs>
2: there
1: was no, There's no one really around and it's very quiet and peaceful and it's countrysidey, And it just kind of feels like a nice thing. But yeah, also just, you know, at moments where you kind of see your parents doing their job and being kind of bossed around by their bosses and stuff like that. It's like, it's it's a very weird thing, isn't it? Because your parents are... I guess the people that you role model and look up to, and to think that like they have bosses is kind of a weird thing, isn't it?
0: Yeah. So, did you actually see your parents being bossed around by their bosses?
1: Yeah. Like, so my mum, it would always be when we would sometimes go to the Christmas concerts that her little village. School, we weren't at the school, but they would. She would take us to the Christmas concerts of her village school, and to kind of see the head teacher bossing all the teachers and getting them all into position and all that sort of thing. I'm having to, to sort of jump to it. And then, and then with my dad, it's more just that there are kind of managers running around saying, hey, this needs doing, that needs doing and whatever. so And also it's a service job, right? So part of my dad's job, which um, it's kind of weird, we're talking about this now because he actually retires this week. It's kind of strange timing. But, you know, part of my dad's job is also to be at the behest and at the service of of the residents of the hotel, right? Like yeah. to serve them breakfast and to take their papers and all that kind of stuff, which is a very, you know, it's a subservient thing. And I think there's a, a thing in British culture, probably quite wrongly, where we, we kind of look down on service, don't we, in some weird cultural ways. But to kind of see that when it's your parents is an odd thing, I think.
0: Do you think it made any impact on how you saw what you wanted your career to be when, when you were older?
1: I don't think so. No, not in a positive or a negative way. I think we never really talked very much about careers or work or anything at home which Mm -hmm. I think is a really you know on on some level you could look at it as a bad thing I think it actually was a really good thing for me I went into work with no expectations with I guess zero ambition but also like zero negativity around different careers or different jobs like it just wasn't a concern to them or almost Mm -hmm. what we ended up doing I think they were just very quiet closed people anyway which is a big part of it but also I don't think they were really that bothered um mm-hmm. what we did they were never the pushy ones that wanted us to be football stars and in <laughs> ferrying us to to sort of musical theater and all that sort of stuff mm-hmm, you know? mm-hmm. that sort of pushy parent thing just didn't really exist in my in my upbringing and I think that's actually a really good thing because I I really felt like I started with a blank slate you know it was it was really down to what I I was listening more to what I wanted to do rather than what somebody else's view of me should be
0: so when did you start to think about what you might want to be when you when you were older
1: part of me thinks i still haven't thought about <laughs> that <laughs> so, so i'm 39 now holding on to the, the nine part of that <laughs> way. and part of me still feels like i haven't quite worked out what i want to do when i grow up but i think my ma- my main experiences of that were from the age of about 12 12 or 13 i had a six day a week paper round. Quite soon after that, I started up a little car washing business, which was basically me and then me and my friend. And I was kind of paying him where we were just going around door to door and kind of washing people's cars on a Saturday and stuff. And I did pot wash in restaurants and I did all kinds of work. And I think I'd always had quite a strong work ethic and a sort of drive towards wanting to, to work. And I think it was those experiences really that started to get me thinking about what do I want to do as a job and what kinds of careers do I want to have versus not have and all that sort of thing. And as much as you know, I say not have, you know, I did things which were really unglamorous, you know, doing pot wash in a Mexican restaurant in the Midlands is, it's a pretty unglamorous <laughs> place to be. You I know, don't know.
0: Of, I think it'd be worse in an Italian restaurant.
1: <laughs> yeah, probably. Well, <laughs> the problem with the Mexican restaurant is all the little, little bowls, right? Yeah. So like all the dips for all yeah. the guacamole and stuff, there's hundreds and hundreds of these things which I think with pizza you just have one plate, don't you?
0: Well, you say that, but you've got lasagna and everything involves baked cheese, which is really uh, hard yeah, to get true. off.
1: No, you have that with Mexican as well. <laughs> but yeah, so that was that was pretty unglamorous. I also worked doing sort of clearing up the tables in a service station restaurant on the M6 okay. for a while, which was again, there's something really soul-destroying about just hearing the the whoosh of cars going past like, Voom. yeah. and you're just doing this really kind of menial thing and you just don't want to be there at all but I think those things are really life-affirming and they build character and I think I think everybody should do those kind of jobs particularly when you when you sort of first start out in in any kind of career I think there's there's so many people who are cosseted through university and then jump into pretty cushy jobs. And Mm
2: -hmm, I think mm
1: -hmm. it's worth appreciating some of that kind of hard graft kind of stuff and the stuff where you literally feel like your back is about to fall off and you don't (laughs) want to be on your feet anymore and all that stuff. And I think, you know, part of – there was always a tension there for me because I was doing that as a teenager thinking, I'm doing A-levels, I'll probably go to university and this probably won't be my life. But for a lot of the other people – who I was doing that work alongside, that was what they'd done for 20 years. You know, Mm -hmm. it was a long-term thing for them.
0: So if you were 12 when you first got a a six-day-a-week paper round and then started doing car washes and everything like that, what was your motivation behind getting your very first job?
1: It's funny because at the time, I would always describe the motivation as I wanted some spending money. Mm -hmm. We didn't really have, like there wasn't really a lot of money in the house at that point. So we didn't really have a lot of pocket money and that kind of thing. And I would always look at that as that's how I get to have the same kind of pocket money to buy clothes and everything else as all my peer group kind of thing. I think looking back on it now, one of the things I've the only thing actually I've learned from doing my podcast is that humans are weird. (laughs) And I think my own weirdness around that was you know, having sort of witnessed these moments in my upbringing where my dad lost his job and then was, was on the dole and my mum and me having this conversation where I said to her, do you think we might lose the house? And my recollection of the conversation, I don't know if this is real or I've made it up since, but my recollection was that I looked into her eyes and I realized that she wasn't confident mm-hmm,
2: and mm-hmm. that
1: she was kind of not lying to me, but she was she was trying to style this thing out. And so I think a lot of my influence behind getting jobs at a young age and having that kind of work ethic was, was a kind of safety thing, right? Okay, so it's like, if okay. I've got a bit of money, then it it leads me towards being safe in some way. And okay. I think that was, you know, certainly the upbringing around money and, and even now the way I see money is about kind of safety and security first and then freedom second. And those are like the two things that kind of drive,
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, I guess, all of my motivation around, around what I do now, I guess.
0: On that topic, I've read pieces that you've that you've written around that, that the fear of not having financial security, and perhaps where your risk profile sits in accordance with that topic. So that very much does stem from childhood, then, of of being in and around, not knowing what was going to happen next, and and very much came from your parents as well.
1: Yeah, totally. I mean, and it's funny because I'm in a pretty good financial position now, and it's it still feels like it's still there you know so it's like I don't know if and I've, I think you've done your research really well Jodie because I think I've only talked about this once before which is the, the fear not podcast which yes. asked me asked me about fears and it's like the one question it's like it's a really great podcast because by saying what's the biggest fear you've dealt with in your life it's like tell me about your soul you know it really feels like a very personal thing So I think it was it was kind of always there. It's still there as a as a thing. And it's much less rational now than it ever was then. Although I'm I'm sure it felt much more scary, you know, when I was 10 or 11 or whenever that was, you know.
0: So do you have a sense of what of what there looks like? Because I think just as entrepreneurs, you're just always striving to the next thing and looking to achieve the next goal. Do you have a sense of like, right, when this happens, or when this is in the bank, or when I'm in this situation, that's when I will, I'm, I'm done with financial security, and I'm kind of, I'm in a good place, and it's okay?
1: Yeah, I think I do have that sense. I mean, one of the things I'm very interested in is the idea of passive income.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: I think for me, the the other side of me with money is that I really like it it really sort of winds me up the way society has become so driven around status symbols and people demonstrating their status and hierarchy based on how much money they earn or what kind of car they drive and all this kind of stuff. So I'm really deliberate about trying to shun all of that as much as possible. Mm -hmm. And so for me, it's never about what kind of house or car or watch or anything else I have. And so what I was trying to get to with that is I I basically live quite frugally, like I don't spend a lot of money. And so I think for me, it's about just having a passive income level that meets Mm -hmm. that regular spending, Mm -hmm. which is not that high. I mean, I talk to friends of mine who earn very good money, but then they spend even more Mm -hmm. and they're always complaining that they have no money. And I just think, wow, (laughs) do you never really think about just making more sustainable choices both for yourself and for the world, I think? A lot less consumerism would be a good thing for the world in general.
2: Yeah.
1: And so there's part part of it is sustainability there. And also, do you not think about what happens if this runs out, or if it stops, or if you suddenly find yourself not wanting to do this anymore? You know. Mm-hmm. So I've I've always been quite quite conscious of not getting too comfortable in a certain lifestyle and then feeling the pressure of needing to sustain that. So for me, it's like I'd much rather have. A very low mortgage or no mortgage than have a nicer house for example mm-hmm. right And i think those are choices that we can all make and often we don't because we're sort of pressured by society into certain we're kind of herded in certain directions right in terms of the next stage and the next thing and all of that so mm-hmm, mm-hmm. am i am i answering the question have i got to the nub of that or
0: yeah definitely something i read that, that you said as well i have done quite a lot of research Is i know because you <laughs>
1: because you messaged me earlier and said that you knew what my A levels were and I was like <laughs> where is that even written online I don't even know <laughs> it's on your
0: linkedin <laughs> Really, It's on your LinkedIn and we did the same A-levels, which I thought was interesting. Yeah, that's,
2: that's quite, isn't
0: it? Yeah, very weird. But I also read the quote was that you'd said success is never money. It's the lifestyle that money allows you to set up. And yeah. I really like that because if you actually see success in terms of just money, like, yeah, you could have a million pounds. But if you actually look at a million pounds, it's just not notes and, co- well, hopefully not coins, but it's just dirty notes, isn't it? So it, in itself, <laughs> <Dirty
2: notes.
0: laughs> in itself, it's not anything. or it's numbers on a screen so I like the concept that it's the lifestyle and the freedom and everything else that the actual money can buy In, in the kind of all the time that we've had conversations I feel like you're very clear on your definition of success so I guess I'm interested to know when you first became clear about about that definition of success and what it might look like.
1: Yeah so the other thing that probably is worth kind of throwing into the mix around that is. So I went to I went to Birmingham University, and I before university and during university was very politically aware. But I did a I did a, a degree course where a lot of the I was doing like doing sociology, but a lot of the analysis was basically Marxist analysis. Okay, which is you know really weird to then. then actually, I, th- I reckon there must be loads of people who studied Marxism and are very left wing in their viewpoints which Mm -hmm. I still am Mm -hmm. uh, to this day who then become entrepreneurs right because I think there's a thing within judging things in a sort of Marxist way which is that you have to pick apart the whole system and look for where the power dynamics are and look for where you're being controlled and so I think all of that was quite influential for me in defining what I didn't want to be or didn't want to do and therefore it's like that helps you to then work out what you do want life to look like. And yeah. so I think in terms of how I define success, it's fulfillment and having the freedom to make my own choices and to kind of shape my own destiny. But also to do that without screwing people over is another very important part of that for me. Mm-hmm. So I'd rather have less money than sell information products that rip people off, for example. There's lots of things there's lots of choices I could make in a business sense you know mm-hmm. just in terms of the kind of company that I run and stuff mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. would probably skyrocket short-term profit in the company and I could take the money and run but I don't and I think that's part of it is that I do, I want to I want there to be a level of integrity to to how I live my life as well as how I how I make my money.
0: So where do you think where's the crux of where that stems from?
1: Wow I love what I, yeah this is like a sort of a uh, this is your life. Like counseling <laughs> counseling session do. Well, the, the, do you know the other influence? So I just mentioned the kind of the Marxism at, at university thing, which is an influence. Another massive influence, which really drives a lot of my thinking, is so my parents were born again Christians, mm-hmm. and so I went to church every Sunday from as early as I can remember until the age of about 12 or something okay so nowadays I would call myself an atheist or an agnostic depending on the context of who I'm talking to I guess and because I think I think atheist is probably a a stronger and bolder term but actually Mm -hmm. agnostic is where most people generally are you know because I think you can't be totally sure of There being no God, I think it's good to to always be skeptical of everything and question everything and stay curious and stuff. Uh So I didn't I didn't come out of it as a Christian, but I definitely related to all of the stories about Jesus being a good guy and sharing, being a good thing and looking after your neighbor and being the good Samaritan. And all of those stories, I think, for me, are just really basic stories of morality and i think i mean to some extent society is driven by kind of judeo christian values yeah. but i think when you when you've been exposed to that so much as i was and as my 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 two sisters were as well interestingly none of us are christians <laughs> the three I the can. three kids <laughs> but i think all of us have a sense of kind of fairness and justice and kindness and just wanting to be nice and good and it and that being an important part of your identity is how you are with other people and how you how you relate to other people and how you treat other people I think that's that's really key you know and so I think that's a a very influential part of
0: Mm -hmm. I guess
1: how I just judge success is to be making a contribution in in a positive way as well.
0: So up until you were 12 there was a kind of religious influence and then now that you'd call yourself more kind of agnostic or atheist. Are there, do you have any personal philosophies or mantras that you try and live your life by now?
1: I don't think so in a defined way. So I've got a friend who's a, from uh, South Carolina in the States, deeply religious, Repu- votes Republican, didn't vote for Trump though. <laughs> but he he's someone who very much embodies that sort of saying of what would jesus do so Mm -hmm. like in any situation his first lens that he looks at uh, any dilemma through is what would jesus do in this situation Mm -hmm. and you know what i find that totally inspiring like Mm -hmm. i just think i think having a lens which is to look through which is basically a lens of goodness and morality and Trying to uh, take a kind of morally high position on on a situation
2: mm-hmm.
1: and being generous, like I just think that is a it's a, it's a very inspiring thing. And and the more time I've spent with him, the more I thought, you know, what actually I I feel like I have a little bit of a what would Jesus do lens. Yeah. Like I'm not saying I'm always follow exactly what Jesus would do in any circumstance or even know what Jesus would do, but like I do think it's there in the in the back of my head mm-hmm. often. Just like what's the sort of What's the kind, generous, good thing to do in this situation and, and trying okay. to follow that? So it's, it's, a, it's kind of vague philosophy, but it's definitely there.
0: Yeah. And there is a similar concept in, in economics, I think, which you studied at A-level, which was, I think it's called the indifferent onlooker or the indifferent stranger, which is sort of how someone would act if they knew someone was watching compared to how they would act if they knew that no one was watching.
1: Oh, that's interesting. I did really badly economics. (laughs) (laughs) I don't remember that at all. (laughs) But I think
0: it's a similar concept. Just think having someone with a high sense of morality in your head and being able to act in accordance with what you think they would do. Then it's, yeah, it's quite, it doesn't need to be Jesus. It could just be a person who you hold up high.
1: Yeah, because I, like, I don't, believe in Jesus as a God, right? So mm-hmm. I think that's what's quite interesting about it as being a kind of moral thing. And maybe it's also probably my favorite book ever was, was reading Nelson Mandela's book. So it, that's another one of some of the virtues of kind of patience and his just good grace in, in very difficult situations in, in prison and stuff. Mm-hmm. I just remember reading that, and just thinking, "Wow, like you're such a better human than me." <laughs> uh-huh. like, just if I could be one percent closer to to that kind of attitude on certain things, you know, I just think that's always something to aim for, right?
0: Yeah. So let's talk about school. What were you like, <laughs> What were you like at school?
1: <laughs> well, not great at school. I re- I remember particularly the age when I was like fourteen through to sixteen as you're sort of getting through GCSE kind of age, mm-hmm. I, I was terrible. So I was, I just discovered alcohol. <laughs>
2: okay.
1: And it was like, wow, this is pretty cool. And I'd also just discovered going out to gigs. So there was a whole bunch of us who were, who were kind of into local indie bands and stuff. And so I ended up, that just took over my life. I ended up promoting gigs, being the singer in a band. I wrote a music fanzine. And as a consequence of all of that, I didn't really do much school. So I I was playing truant. I was drinking and uh, getting involved in other stuff at the weekend that meant that on a Monday morning, I wasn't really in a fit state to go to school. Like it was a really bad little period for a couple of years. And then I really, I I guess in A-level, I kind of felt less stifled and I felt like I had more autonomy because it was subjects that I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. And it felt like I had more respect from the teachers and it was more of a kind of the style of teaching shifted into A-level and I I just got on with it much more. So A-level was better for me and then my degree was even better. Like I I loved studying my degree and it was probably, I think to be honest, studying my degree was probably the first time I actually developed any disciplined study skills whatsoever, which was weird because then my publisher said, hey, your productivity ninja book did really well. Can you write a book on study skills? And I was (laughs) just like, I am not the person to ask, dude. Like I was terrible.
0: So it sounds like you you learn more or you get more out of teaching when you've got more autonomy.
1: Yeah, I I did. Yeah, I felt like the school classroom, and I didn't go. You know, I went to very average state schools. I went to um, a very very good grammar school for secondary, which was like a you, you sort of passed the twelve plus exam as it was then mm-hmm. to get into. And so the, the standard of the teaching was very good, but I just felt quite stifled by, just by the kind of structure of it and by, I guess, the size of the classes. And I and I, I think I was quite, I was probably quite sort of gobby as a kid, <laughs> do you know what I mean? And so the idea of only, of not being able to get too many words in was probably difficult and, do you know what I mean? It, I, I just, I didn't find it a very inspiring environment and, until quite late, until really when I was doing my degree.
0: OK, so in that, well, talking about the, the knowledge book, actually, that in your book, The Knowledge Ninja, um, in the acknowledgments, you thank your mom and your dad and your granny who've helped your lifelong journey of learning. So <laughs> what comes under your lifelong journey of learning?
1: Wow, that's probably just one of those things I had to write because I was on a massive deadline. <laughs> 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 well, I think so. My gran is a pretty amazing person. So she's she's ninety two. And still drives now and she's still totally compass mentis and whatever. Lives at the end of the road from where my parents live in Rugby. And I I remember being very angry when I was 14, 15 because I had hormones <laughs> and just really not getting on with my parents very well and just really kicking back against school and whatever. I used to go around to my grand's house like towards the end of finishing my paper round every day. And have a cup of tea and she would just sit and just listen to me just spouting probably what in hindsight was probably utter (laughs) drivel and she would just listen and just be like well you know you should think and would just always have a really wise piece of advice you know and I think I always just I learned so much and sort of continue to do really.
0: Can you remember any of any of the advice that she gave you?
1: Well it's the thing is it's all fairly straightforward stuff that you can't notice when you're angry or annoyed or whatever. It's, you know, it's just like, well, maybe your parents are thinking about it in this way or maybe you should listen to what your dad's saying more. Yeah. just like quite simple or maybe you should have a conversation with them about it. You know, just quite simple advice, but just what was more important was her ability to not jump to those conclusions too quickly, but mm-hmm. just to to hear me out. I think that was what I really learned is like that real value of like holding space for somebody mm-hmm. and letting, letting somebody really vent what's there just giving someone the space to do that I think is just really valuable and I, I think oddly I probably talk to my grandless less now because I just need that a lot less right so mm. I think when you're an, an angry teenager you just need it more don't you <laughs> yes yeah and, and so I think that would be an important lesson I think probably for my parents also the other thing was, would just be they've always been very moral upstanding people that want to do the right thing and don't want to make a fuss and all that sort of thing. And I think that's always stuck by me as as something that's quite a good virtue to emulate most of the time.
0: So your parents didn't want to make a fuss, but then you you in school you said were quite like out, yeah, outspoken. So where where did that come from?
1: I don't know. <laughs> I really don't know. To be honest, I mean, I think possibly the sort of teenage thing, isn't there? Of I discovered bands and music and and drinking and all this stuff, and it was like. Oh, all these teachers are so square. Like they don't get all this exciting stuff that I'm doing. So I think it was really juvenile. But I mean, the other thing was there was a there was a, a physics teacher. I hated physics, but the physics teacher once gave me this big NME like you know, the NME like the music magazine annual with like all this sort of the history of rock and roll and whatever. And we'd bring in tapes and we'd swap music and stuff. And so even though I really it couldn't work out what the hell his lessons were about because I just wasn't very good at physics. I just loved him on a personal level, and actually, I went. I went back. I did the thing about two years ago when that book came out. I was asked to go back and talk to my school, which was one of the most. I mean, I go. In, I go into corporate boardrooms and big big corporate venues and talk to hundreds of people. The scariest thing I've done in the last few years was go back to my old assembly hall <laughs> and talk to the kids who are now in my school and some of the teachers that I was in school with who are still there, right? Like, <laughs> and like it'd give a talk for them. It was just terrifying. But yeah, and so I managed to catch up with him um, a couple of years ago and he's still still doing his thing, still into his music. And that was, that was kind of cool.
0: Okay, so were there any other teachers who, who stood out to you for any reason?
1: Well, the other one was the head teacher, was just this very inspiring leader. Uh, He's called Dr. Pogson. And what was remarkable about him is this was a school with, you know, 90 kids per year group, seven or eight year groups. He literally knew the name of every single person in that school, Mm -hmm. like every kid as well as obviously all the teachers. But, like, I just could not wrap my head around that at all. And when I was truanting and having a bit of a difficult phase and stuff, my parents went in to see him. And so he sort of hauled me into the the headmaster's office with my parents a couple of times and just basically would just have these conversations with me just sort of saying, what are you doing? You're like, this is, what do you want to be? Like, where do you want to get to? Do you really think what you're doing right now is contributing to that? Is it going to help you? Is it going to hinder you? And he just kind of never gave up on me. And I think at the time I really had respect for him and I didn't want to let him down. And looking back on it, I just think, wow, like, Mm -hmm. there's a guy who, if he's doing that for two or three kids every year think how many lives he's changed Mm. and even now I think about him a lot and um, I know he's still around in rugby I've bumped into him a couple of times in rugby but yeah I just think there's something really unique about being a teacher or a head teacher that just gives you the ability to shape lives in a way that, that very few other jobs give you I think.
0: Yeah. Well, I mean between Dr. Pogson and your granny, it sounded like they <laughs> they really did sort you out. <laughs>
1: It did, yeah,
0: Indeed. did. <laughs> was there anyone else apart from those two who contributed? Because I mean, it's quite, it's a very different situation to going from someone who is really into alcohol, really into like going to gigs and describing school and everything to being a global best-selling author with, with books next to Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos and Tim Ferriss. Yeah, I sent you that picture the other day, didn't I? When you were on the shelves next to all those yeah, guys. So what else made the switch apart from advice?
1: But here's the thing. I don't think, there's actually that much difference in me as a person from those two scenarios. Okay. okay. So what I was doing around that time was I was getting five of my mates together and making an indie band happen. Mm-hmm. And I was getting another four or five of my mates together and we were writing gig reviews and album reviews and putting out fanzines, which by the way is a huge amount of work, right? <laughs> like this is back in the day where you couldn't do that stuff on computer. So you could type out the stuff on a word sort of word. I think it was called word perfect back then. It's before Microsoft word, but you'd print it out and then cut it out. And and sort of, you know, the, the, the ethos of these things was kind of cutting and sticking and all very kind of DIY. And then they'd be photocopied and stuff. I managed to convince the bursar of the school, to photocopy the fanzine hundreds of times for free. Um, So just using the school's photocopier and the school's paper and everything else, like, because he just kind of believed in what I was doing and was just like, yeah, just let the kid channel his energy, right? So I think there's a lot of similarity between that teenage version of me and I think being an entrepreneur, being an author. You know, being an author is a very lonely job in many ways. And so you have to learn to work in a solitary way.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. And actually my preference now is to work in a solitary way I work much better if I'm just on my own with Mm -hmm. nobody around me and no internet connection and everything else so I think there's there's a lot of similarity I mean obviously the the thing that then changes is you have to your behavior has to be in keeping with the environment so when Mm -hmm. I go into businesses I have to I have to not be a sweary teenager obviously
0: (laughs) yeah Uh, although you'd uh, probably stand out if you were I'm sure there are quite a lot of people in business who, (laughs) who get away with it
1: And there's probably people who sort of make such a virtue about swearing that they become big business speakers and stuff. Yes. But yeah, so I think part of me changed and I've definitely got a lot mellower and I hope a lot wiser. But I think there's a little kind of cheeky streak within all of that, which is quite a sort of, for me, that's the sort of two sides of the coin with me is there's the kind of cheeky, see what you can get away with streak. And then there's the kind of being soft and kind and nice and, and virtuous kind of streak, right? Mm-hmm. So I, I think for me, that's what excites me is where those two things are combined, you know, where you, where you get stuff where it's like social enterprise and kind of socially disruptive stuff is for me what's the that's where the excitement comes, I guess.
0: So really, one of the main differences between you then and you now is then you had to go to school. <laughs> and now you don't. <laughs> so it's not, That's it's not true. naughty anymore. It's just a, it's just a role. It's like a job. Yeah.
1: yeah. But, you know, and I suppose the other thing is never underestimate how much you learn outside of the classroom. Because what I was doing through all of that was learning and all through university, what I did alongside my degree was volunteering. So I was, I was volunteering on a kid scheme for eight to 11 year olds from inner city Birmingham and taking them out into the countryside and to the beach and places they'd never been before. And then I became leader of that. So you're learning all these kind of organizational skills and leadership skills. And I think there's something really important about kind of practical practical learning. Mm-hmm. And I think you can certainly get that through doing projects and stuff as part of your study. But when you've got real eight to 11-year-olds, kids, and when you've got you know a real music magazine that is really going to sit in the hour-price record shop in rugby and everyone's going to read it and whatever, like there's consequences to what you're doing. Mm-hmm. And so I think... I probably learned as much that influenced my career outside the classroom than I did inside the classroom, if not way more.
0: Mm-hmm. So, is there anything that your your parents or your or your granny said to you that you can kind of feel yourself saying to like your son or to or to when you when you speak to the kids who you're who you're working with?
1: So, coming back to one of the things I was saying before, like my parents were really quiet, like we and very sort of emotionally closed people so I honestly can't think of anything that they would have said to me as a mantra that I, I would now repeat or even think about I know mm-hmm. that sounds really weird but like I think there's probably more people like that than than you think you know mm-hmm. just who, who grew up with parents who really never talked to them about anything kind of emotional or yeah I remember actually I remember you saying to me once Jody, how you were in a room of people who were entrepreneurs and. Mm-hmm. They did a kind of go round of hands up if your parents were an entrepreneur. Basically, everybody yeah. in the room was an entrepreneur. Their parents were as well. And I think I'm one of the anomalies in that my parents weren't. Yeah. But I think there are, there are lots of people who didn't necessarily have, didn't have a bad upbringing at all, but certainly didn't have an upbringing where they were being shaped to be in certain careers or in, in a certain kind of role.
0: Yeah. Sure. So that was
1: just never, it was just never really part of the, the fabric of my upbringing really.
0: Well, I guess if you're in a situation where you haven't got like pushy parents and they're very much happy to let you kind of get on and do your thing and then you start entering the world of work at 12, that's that's fairly early to get a sense of what making your own money and and being independent is like. So I can imagine that that would lead to self-employment even more so maybe than having having self-employed parents.
1: Yeah, I think so. You know, just seeing work really early and then just my brain. Like I started washing cars and then it was like, I've got more roads and more regular customers than Mm -hmm. I can handle. And Mm -hmm. so I got my mate Stuart involved. Right. And so he started washing some of the cars. And it's just like that's a really obvious thing to do. But looking back on it now. Yeah. As a sort of early teenaged kid, then obviously that's my first sort of experience of being an entrepreneur. And I think there's probably something more valuable about the lessons you learn from that than going to business school and, and sort of getting an MBA and, and all that because it's really real. You know, I remember at one point me and Stuart washing a car together and we decided to have a little competition with ourselves of how quickly can we wash this car. So we knocked on this guy's door, washed his car literally like at full pelt, the two of us. <laughs> and about four minutes later, we, we knocked on the door and we're like, hey, can we have the money? And he was just really annoyed. and It was like, <laughs> Why is he annoyed? We've done the job really quickly. But of course, there's a difference between there's the end product that you're paying for, which is my car is clean. But actually, the other thing you're paying for is the story of somebody has labored really for a long time over my car. And so I learned that lesson in two minutes at the age of 12 or 13 of, Oh, actually brand is a really important part of yeah. the story here you know and so,
0: so so you were like a productivity ninja before your time then
1: well I was a as a car washer for sure <laughs> <laughs> but I think those sort of early sort of early forays into being an entrepreneur whether it's you know the the, the American tailors always of lemonade stands isn't it that's always yeah. the sort of classic thing but yeah. I think anything that you know cake sales and I remember doing, um, organizing, a, almost single-handedly, actually, me and my sister did a Blue Peter bring and buy sale in yes. our local church. And we literally, we were the ones putting the posters up around the town and, like, getting everyone to come and yeah. all that sort of thing at a really young age. And, again, so those are real things where there's there's stuff on the line and there's a, there's a way of measuring that, and it's real. And those things are always really important. Important experiences more than any kind of sayings or, or kind of mantras that people can leave you with, I think.
0: I think Blue Peter is responsible for a lot of enterprising activity and it's all to get that Blue Peter badge. Did you ever get one? Yeah,
1: I had two. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm not going to lie. I had, so I got one because I was runner-up in a competition, which was to design the picture that went in the back of the Blue Peter annual one year. So I got a competition badge. I never got in, in the studio, but I, they just sent me the badge because I was like a runner-up. And then what I realized later is if you just wrote them a letter, they'd send you a badge. <laughs> like, oh, wow. So I wrote them a letter which had like a picture of Jack the Cat or something. And then they just sent me back a Blue Peter badge. It's like, wow, it's so easy. So I told my sister and then she did the same thing and she got a Blue Peter badge. And uh-huh. so it became like, oh, I've got this secret now. And so I would sort of tell kids at school, you just write them a letter with a picture and stuff and they'll send you a Blue Peter badge. It wasn't hard. Cheating. <laughs> Cheating the system. Yeah. <laughs>
0: so also on the Tintra web about you is that just dis- i'll read out the quote that i read it says despite an intolerance of failure elsewhere in his life graham is an aston villa season ticket holder and so my yeah. husband ben who you know is an aston villa supporter so i totally feel your pain but i was really interested in the intolerance of failure so where does that stem from where where did you first develop this
1: well maybe it's it, it could also just be a good line to get Aston Villa into, <laughs> into my bio.
2: <laughs> it could.
1: But there is some truth to that. And I really don't know where that comes from. I think I have – there are certain things that I just really want to be done to a good standard or just done really well. I don't like slapdash. I don't like, I don't like doing things in a sort of half-hearted way. Mm-hmm. And, in fact, that's probably my biggest – it's also, if we're going to get deeply – analytical and, and sort of counselling about go, it. It's probably also it. the thing that, it's probably also the reason that I have not started another business since Think, think Productive because mm-hmm. I think there's a sense of, I don't want to do anything that's half assed And so when I feel like I've got the time and space to start something else and give it absolutely a hundred percent of my focus and attention, then I will. Mm-hmm. So it's a blessing and a curse. Like it means that I drive certain people within Think Productive mental with mm-hmm. certain things about the brand or about what's on the website or whatever and it's like that that's really shit take that down and so like and I'll really go off on one about certain things that I think are not to a standard that I yeah. want to adhere to but it also means that it's kind of crippling procrastination inducing has that side to it as well
0: yeah sure so do you think there are any childhood influences on that like do you remember doing kind of badly at anything when you were younger and then being really annoyed that you didn't do better
1: I definitely remember being in science classes at school and this is a real regret now actually because it's just fascinating like science totally fascinates me and I think at some point I'll end up going back and doing my science GCSEs again because I, I remember sitting there and just struggling with it all just not understanding particularly physics but just you know what is he going on about what, what are all these things it just the concepts of it just really felt like they washed over me. Other than that, I felt like, you know, I was pretty good at maths when I wanted to be. I always loved English and media studies and sociology and humanities and all that stuff. And so I had pretty good natural ability for stuff when I put my mind to it. Mm
2: -hmm, mm -hmm. And
1: for lots of school, that was the big if, was if I put my mind to it, I'd be fine. But I don't think I struggled massively with that stuff. But I think, again, I think it's back to the the sort of wanting to do a good job with stuff and and wanting to over deliver for clients and customers and stuff. It like, it always comes back to, I just want it to be really good. You know, and I, I think I, I sometimes observe other businesses and, you know, just a really wide range of businesses. I'm not talking about kind of direct competitors to, to yeah. the work I do. Just, you know, you go into a restaurant or a cafe and you're like, look at the state of this table or look at this like yeah. there are things like that that I it just makes me cringe like how bad those experiences are and can be and mm-hmm. so I think that's always it's just always a thing I just I think I just have a, a sort of innate driver around kind of quality of experience mm-hmm. and and sort of wanting to wanting things to be really great value you mm-hmm.
0: know? it does become a bit of an occupational hazard when when you start noticing so many things and then you're almost critiquing everyone else's business all the time
1: yeah and it was like the thing that me and my then partner used to go to India like most winters for three or four weeks whatever before we had a kid and then we've kind of since broken up but like we'd be like sat in these restaurants and it would, it would just the, the entire conversation would just be that, right. It would just be like, they should be doing this differently. And like, why is it, why is the beer not in the fridge? And why is it, you know, it's just, and it was absolutely relentless and I'm sure for her very boring. Although she quite got into the, a lot of those kind of, you know, cause the other side of that is then you dream up what you would do differently and what would be the ideal little restaurant in Goa to run and all that stuff. And she'd quite get into that to be fair.
0: So next venture, restaurant in Goa.
1: Yeah, maybe. Yeah, Af- maybe.
0: <laughs> after you've written your next five books, is it?
1: Well, I, I signed a four book deal and I'm just, I'm currently about halfway through the next book, which is a, is basically going to be a book about nutrition okay. and how to eat to have better energy. Hmm. And I'm really loving researching it and I'm working with a really great co-author on it who is an, is a nutritionist with many degrees in the subject. So that's again, yeah, back to the quality thing. I I feel like there's no way I could do that kind of a subject justice without a proper expert on it. So um mm-hmm. Colette Hennigan, who's actually been my nutrition coach as well over the last couple of years, is working with me on the book and um she's she's phenomenal. So enjoying putting that one together. And then yeah, have this this deal for the next few. I'm mean, I'm very lucky with my publisher. I think basically because Productivity Ninja did really well, they've basically given me a bit of a blank slate and said, what do you want to write about? When do you want to do it?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: We'll sign you up. And so either I'm just really cheap or <laughs> they have a lot of faith in me.
0: It's <laughs> the probably. latter, <laughs> of course. <laughs>
1: probably a bit of both. But I think that's probably one of those things that I look at in my sort of current career and think, wow, I mean, that is such a is such a privilege and such a gift. And um, mm-hmm. yeah, it's one of those things that just astonishes me every time I say those words out loud, to be honest
0: so thank you so much for joining us on the creating useful people podcast where is the best place for people to find out more about you
1: thank you i feel like i've had free therapy (laughs) today so it's been a lot of fun you can find me at grahamalcott.com there's a a contact form on there my business is called think productive so just thinkproductive.com And my podcast is called Beyond Busy. So that's at getbeyondbusy.com or just search your podcast app. And my book is called, my best-known book is probably the one you should look for, is called How to Be a Productivity Ninja. But actually, if you're in study mode and interested in study skills, I have a book called How to Be a Study Ninja, which is me uh, really kind of applying a lot of the kind of science and psychology of productivity to study skills because i couldn't use my own experiences
0: (laughs) brilliant (laughs) thank you very much graham thank you this episode was brought to you by clever tykes children's storybooks if you want to support the podcast and help share our ethos of inspiring enterprising behavior head over to clevertykes.com and order a set of the storybooks to give to a child that you know